Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in Iowa City. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Uh, today we have the first of many conversations that will be happening this week on the UI campus as part of the 2015 Provost Global Forum on the topic, The Arab Spring in a Global Context. The forum is a multi-day international symposium, which will be filled with conversations, panel discussions, keynote addresses, and the presentation of papers, as well as art exhibits and musical performances. So we hope you can take advantage of many of those during this week. I'm thrilled to have the organizer of the symposium here with us tonight to help us understand a little bit better what happened in those early, seemingly optimistic days some five years ago when the term Arab Spring first entered the world's vocabulary and what's happened since. Dr. Ahmed Swayaya is Associate Professor of Islamic Studies at the University of Iowa, teaching in both the Department of Religious Studies and the College of Law. Professor Swayaya teaches Islamic law, women in Islam and the Middle East, human rights law, religion and politics, religion in the public sphere, and introduction to Islamic civilization. His primary research areas include social, social justice in Islamic discourse, political dissent in Islam, women in Islamic law, Islamic political theory, modern Islamic thought, and religion and politics in Islamic civilization. So thank you so much, Ahmed, for being here this afternoon. Thank you, Joan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I know we're all looking forward to the symposium and the many speakers we have both on this program and later in the week, and you'll have a chance to highlight some of the things that are going to be happening. But um, So we all know that events in the Middle East have been sort of moving at a dizzying pace since those early days in late 2010 when things began to bubble up in Tunisia. Um, take us back to those times and um, give us an idea of what Tunisia was like before the uprising. Well, if I may, I, I should start actually with the title. The Arab Spring is uh, by no means, at least uh, since I'm the person putting the conference together, by no means I'm endorsing uh, the, the, that phrase itself. It's highly contested. Um, in, in fact, it has to do more with the Western uh, perception of what's happening uh, in the Arab world, and it has to do well, maybe with more with the uh, aspiration of how the Western governments and Western society want to see happening in the Arab world. Uh, <clears throat> personally, if I were to choose a title or a name for uh, the uprising and for what was happening there, it would be the uh, uprisings of, for dignity or the dignity revolutions or something along those mm -hmm. lines, because these were really the motivating forces, uh, at least in the case of Tunisia. And I'll try to speak more about Tunisia for a couple of reasons. I know more about it than other countries. I was born in Tunisia, so I'd like to prop up Tunisia for, for a change. Uh, <laughs> a lot of Tunisians feel more proud about Tunisia than uh, before. Um, the second thing I'd like to highlight is uh, that also maybe the title, the Arab Spring may not do a lot of justice, is that this is not the first time that places like Tunisia, Egypt, or any other country where uh, the uh, people wanted to protest and wanted to overthrow governments or wanted to change their situations. Uh, specifically, uh, Tunisia in the 19... Uh, uh, 86, uh, all the way until 1987, with a series of uh, protest movements. Uh, the West dubbed them at that time uh, the bread revolutions. Uh, and I, I think even that name is also misunderstood because a lot of people think that bread revolution, people are hungry, economically distraught, and they want to get more bread. Uh, it was also, uh, the same interpretation was applied in the uh, uh, Arab Spring of 2010 and 2011, uh, you may have seen some images of people holding bread, what people here call French bread, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then the interpretation is like uh, people are hungry, 
and they want bread. What actually the discourse that was going on is that um, what people were protesting and what, what they were saying is like bread and water, uh, if that's what we have to uh, eat and drink, and this president or this regime is out. So if we have to pay by giving the luxury of falafel or hummus or baba ganoush and just stick to bread and water, we will do it. So it's kind of an inverse uh, process. Same thing with the 1986. People just were not happy with the way they were governed. People were not happy with the status quo. They were not happy with this president for life. Uh, at that time, Bourguiba, who acquired this title of the great mujahid, uh, uh, and at the same time, great mujtahid, he tried to be not just a, a fighter for, for Tunisian society, uh, but he wanted also to take credit for being a reformer of Tunisia. And he was in his uh, late 80, uh, 80s or early 90s, I think 93 years old at that time. And people went to the street. Uh, I was, in fact, in high school when this happened. And the regime then responded with the same force and with the same brutality. In fact, one of my high school friends, his mom was shot in front of her house. Hmm. And nothing had happened, no reparation, nothing was paid. He had to leave school because of that. And uh, people, Tunisians were just as determined then in 1986 as they were in uh, uh, 2010 and 2011 to change their situation. But that didn't happen mostly because of the, uh, this intricate relationship with the West uh, that, in a sense, uh, prevented it from happening. Um, ben Ali, who was overthrown in this recent uprising, was then the prime minister uh, and interior minister. He was basically the head of the government, and Bourguiba was the president. He stepped in at dawn uh, on November 7, uh, 1987, and declared the president incompetent to govern. And uh, first thing he promised, it's not more bread or anything. He pro and this is, goes into this question of dignity, what really people wanted. So he said, from now on, there will be only term limits, two terms and you're done. And we're going to have real elections. Uh, we're going to have. We're going to respect the uh, the wishes and the demands of the people, and we'll make sure that we are transparent and we listen to to, to the people who we govern. And a new constitution and new changes. Not new constitution, but more like a altered constitution. And uh, people were happy, and they thought this is real change, right? But obviously, if you do the math from 1987 and him governing in 2010. That's not two terms of eight years or two terms of ten years. Mm -hmm. That's a long term. <laughs> and guess what happened? He kept changing the Constitution, amending the Constitution, and remaining from term limit when it worked. Uh, and last one, he was uh, restricted by age. He said, as long as you're like 74 years old, uh, you, you're able to run. Mm -hmm. And he did real math so that actually when election is held, he'll be like just days short of 74. <laughs> 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 and he became president basically for life in a different way. What also didn't change, although the people struggled hard really to bring about real change, what hasn't changed is those who narrate for us, the media, historians, academics. In fact, the media immediately when the outgoing president was removed, they used the same label and they start putting it on this guy. So they called him the great Mujahid. It was so embarrassing that he himself said, no, 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 I don't want it. Uh, and that basically speaks to also when a revolution is really a revolution, when real change happens. Uh, that's not the case that is happening in, 20, uh, I think, 2010 and 2011. Uh, people were not also protesting. That, yes, the economic conditions were harsh. 
but they were not about economic condition. They were about dignity. They wanted to be treated uh, with dignity. They wanted to be uh, respected, and they wanted to be listened to. They wanted to have a say. They wanted corruption to end, and I think that's where they were very successful. And a couple things happened in the, uh, 2010. In Tunisia, uh, later it will inspire other countries, but what happened there that first the government or the state as an instrument has been redefined. Its mission has been redefined. That means it's going to emphasize a new role in society. And that was done in the Constitution that just passed a year ago, or that was approved a year ago. The second that happened uh, also in Tunisia is that the relationship between the ruled and the rulers have irreversibly changed. Uh, I was, uh, for the first round of election, 2011, I was in Tunisia, and it was shocking for me to see it being outside and then go and see the dynamics have changed. This little village in the middle between Tunisia and this inner city. And uh, as I was driven to go into this inner city to uh, observe the election, um, this, the, the road was blocked. And they, were afraid, they weren't afraid of police, military, or anything else. And the demand is basically they needed uh, better services uh, and they needed to be respected in that little town. They were not afraid like the way they were afraid before. And so the end of fear was clearly established. Uh, and that is really the greatest inspiration. So if the Arab Spring is really about anything in the Arab world, it's about reclaiming their dignity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that happened in Tunisia, it w- and they were very successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, in places where they were struggling already, like in Egypt, they also were uh, uh, inspired some more, and we know what happened in Egypt. Um, in Yemen, we know also what happened in Yemen. And then we have this case, uh, cases in Libya and Syria where I think it uh, diverted, uh, or at least the path of these series of uprisings was diverted into different directions. Uh, but I, I think that's my take on it. Mm. We have great colleagues mm. who would be talking to us for the duration of the week. Yeah. Uh, they give us more information from a multitude of perspectives. Mm-hmm. And I'm personally looking forward to it. I'm sure the rest of you will be uh, enjoying and learning from that. Mm-hmm. Well, so as, as you give this example of Tunisia, from your own perspective, that's been something of a success. There is a new constitution, which uh, you told me before really has recognized women's rights in a new way and um, citizens' rights. Um, yeah. So Hillary Clinton, <laughs> somewhere early on in, in this whole thing that we have called the Arab Spring, right. used Tunisia's revolution as sort of a, what she saw as potentially a model for other Middle Eastern change. Um, yeah. Was she... Was she right there? I mean, would Was this have she, been a good model to follow? Uh, which Tunisia? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the crazy, I mean, crazy thing, because to me, I, I do have some passion for uh, what's happening in Tunisia, what had happened in the past. I can relate to it on a personal level. And uh, the, the problem to me is when now they come in and say Tunisia ought to be a model. They said the same thing about Ben Ali. Uh-huh. You know, uh, Ben Ali, uh, if you look at the, uh, with the, with the exception of uh, colleagues, especially academics like uh, my colleague Juan Cole, who probably called most of the Middle Eastern uh, dictators before the rest of the world knew them as dictators, you're not going to find Ben Ali and dictatorship attached. Hmm. Um, he, he was the moderate leader. He was uh, somebody uh, respected, appraised, and helped and supported. In fact, uh, Hillary Clinton made a uh, say, and it was actually uh, interesting that he was taken off the website, the State Department website. She praised uh, Ben Ali for his support uh, against uh, terrorism as if that is the only litmus mm. test 
for us to brand friend, friendly presidents or unfriendly presidents. Ben Ali uh, was a dictator before and was a dictator after. And I think we lose credibility when uh, we come now and say it ought to be supported because this is a role model uh, when we were not also firm on the side of the people when they were demonstrating on uh, December 17th, mm -hmm. uh, 2010. Um, and that's where actually I think Tunisians are very aware of that. Uh, and they really don't pay a lot of attention about now whether Tunisia is a model. In fact, they want to be left out. Mm. Uh, in terms of the Constitution, uh, I would encourage, especially now we're heading towards uh, an election season, uh, and I would encourage uh, Americans, even for selfish purposes, is to study it as, as a document. It is really inspiring in many ways. Uh, uh, still, we're struggling whether Obama, Obamacare is a good thing or not. The Tunisian Constitution actually made it an explicit statement that health care for anyone who cannot or anyone who is not paid enough to have health care, it is the responsibility of the state to provide health care. So call it Jasmine Obamacare or whatever <laughs> you want to call it, but that's just an example. Um, also, in, uh, compare also what happened in Iraq under the watch of, uh, of uh, the, the U.S. Uh, military and administrators and all that process versus what happened in Tunisia independently. Um, in Iraq, all what they were asked is, like, show us women on your ballot that we have 50% women or 25% women on your ballot. But once the, uh, the, the votes are in and counted, it doesn't matter who will actually take the actual seat in the parliament. And we end up actually with really imbalance in, in the parliaments ever since in, in Iraq and this emerging democracy under the watch of the gun. In Tunisia, they said it's beyond that. When you win an election, and let's say you win two seats, one of them is for men and one of them is for women. Mm. And this is mandated in the EU Constitution. It is one of the most progressive uh, constitution that emerged out of this uh, dignity revolution in Tunisia. And I think that is really the inspiring uh, part uh, out of all in this process because it's, it will inspire uh, Tunisians to, uphold, to uphold you know, mm -hmm. the, that, that, uh, that which they struggled for so much. And it will inspire its neighbors, places that are still unstable, trying to figure their way uh, around all this mess to also write a constitution that actually uh, they, they deserve for, mm -hmm. for so long. So. so why was the experience in Egypt so different? I think many people in the West would have acknowledged uh, that Mubarak was a dictator, Correct. but he was still a friend of America. There was the, the accord with Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, why was the situation in Egypt, why did it take such a different track than what happened in Tunisia? Uh, my personal take on it, there are a number of circumstances. Some of them are institutional circumstances. Some of them are historical. Some of them are international relations, like the, uh, Egypt being this only two of, uh, one, one of two countries in the Arab world or the Islamic world that have the Arab world that have uh, diplomatic relations with Israel, this peace accord that they have. So that needs to be factored in. The other thing that is also different is the role and the place and the training and the mentality of the military in both countries. Uh, in Tunisia, it is really a professional military. It doesn't have economic or political interests in the country. Mm. I don't think we can say the same thing about Egypt. The military there is, uh, is uh, well vested in the economy. They have, they have business in everything, you know, mm -hmm. from paper to apartments to buildings to skylines. Uh, the Tunisian military, uh, even before the, Arab, uh, the, the, the protest movement and the new constitution, they had uh, this mentality of being neutral that they're there to protect the country and protect the people. 
if you look at the images when the police who are under the control of the politicians were uh, ordered to shoot and they did shoot uh, close to 400 people were killed by the police the military stepped in to actually protect the protesters uh, and this uh, something is not really emphasized the new constitution by the way maintains that tradition and spells it out they said the police and security forces must be neutral and neutrality is not just in words it's actually in, in practice mm -hmm. when I was there in 2011 in October we were traveling from little town to little town to watch these uh, uh, elections and then uh, one person was hitchhiking and that's acceptable in Tunisia unlike in the US <laughs> uh, the only way in fact for many people to tra to move uh, around so we would pulled over and we asked where are you going he said we're going to this city He's like yeah we're going that way too so he jumps in the back he was wearing uh, civilian clothes this person and then the chat went on and it, we discovered that he's a police officer and then he said uh, I have this shift starting at 10 p.m. and it's gonna last until tomorrow morning to secure the elections and myself thinking uh, for, you, you know the American mentality that seeps into you without you knowing you think that you understand 100% uh, African culture and American culture, but it escaped me. So he's like, you must then have voted absentee ballot or did you vote a week earlier or something? And he kind of laughed at me. He's like, you're born in this country. Don't you know that we don't vote? And, and then I remember, that's the kind of neutrality. Is the military and the police, they do not vote. They cannot vote even for their mother oh. if she was running. Oh, really? and, and that's to remain in neutral. Yeah. And it paid off. Uh, during the demonstration mm -hmm. they were especially the military was really professional and you cannot do that uh, I think we cannot say the same thing about Egypt um, also it's hindsight I think what happened in Tunisia uh, many of the country that did not want to see this real change take place uh, became a little bit more prepared more involved in diverting attention and uh, bringing in a new narrative uh, starting a new narrative uh, and also interfering in the event. I think Saudi Arabia had a major uh, role. Uh, I mean, in the end, they, are, they took Ben Ali, you know, the mm -hmm. dictator. Mm -hmm. uh, he's uh, still living in Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that they were, the government uh, re requested that he's handed over for uh, charged with mm -hmm. uh, authorizing the killing of protesters. Mm -hmm. and, and so that played a major role. Saudi Arabia is closer to Egypt. Um, Saudi influence in many ways also uh, was more prominent in Egypt than it was in Tunisia. Mm -hmm. uh, and a number of other things, I'm sure it will be highlighted later mm -hmm. on uh, this week. Mm -hmm. But these are, I think, the, some of the elements and some of the uh, distinguishing factors. Yeah. Well, uh, is, the, is the, um, the picture of Islam and the, the factions within uh, Islam, is that quite different in Tunisia from other parts of the Middle East that we've seen? I mean, is there a real fight for a more conservative side of life, for example, than what you have just explained in the new constitution? Are there those who'd like to see Sharia law? Uh, there are. Um, one of the uh, benefits or the positive outcomes of the uh, Arab Spring or the Dignity Revolution is that now the Western scholars do not have the luxury of labeling all conservative movements as Islamists. That's over. I mean, if you do that, you really still sleep, uh, and you ought to wake up. Now, most scholars need to actually distinguish between the Salafis, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, and within the Salafis themselves, the uh, Salafis who are interested in this so-called dawah, which is like missionary work, versus the jihadi Salafis. Mm -hmm. And even the Muslim Brotherhood, there are many fa factions within, many groups, many uh, um, uh, leadership uh, centers and, uh, and figures. 
uh, Anahda, which is the uh, uh, prominent religious conservative uh, movement, and some think that it is, in, a, in essence, the Muslim Brotherhood branch in Tunisia, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, and has been, even in the past, interested in bringing a change uh, through the will of the people. They believe in a process where the people actually voice from a, a, the mm-hmm. bottom-up process. The people, they'll preach to the people and try to convince people that they're better stewards mm-hmm. for the country. As opposed to some of these Salafi uh, fighter, uh, or they don't believe in a process like that at all. They believe in a process top-down. Uh, the people cannot be trusted uh, with bringing change, and they cannot be trusted with uh, securing a uh, good place for religion, and therefore it has to be imposed by the gun. So from a point of view of academics, now we have actually uh, now the responsibility and the burden to speak actually with more specificity. From the point of view of people living in there, we, um, it, it, it puts at uh, center stage uh, different discourses, uh, religious discourses. And I think they, they are present in Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. They're present uh, or represented in, through a Nahda in Tunisia. They're present in Al-Qaeda, they're present in ISIL, ISIS, however you want to call it. Tunisia has a um, strong presence uh, of, a uh, new and strong presence of the uh, Salafis or members that would be affiliated with Al-Qaeda or ISIL, but most of them were, in fact, attracted to the, to the war in Syria and Libya. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, some put the figure between 5,000 to 10,000 Tunisians fighting uh, in Syria and now in Iraq. Uh, but now Nahda, in fact, is, a, is, is the party that will play a role of making even this distinction between those who do not believe mm-hmm. in uh, giving voice to the people and those who want to impose a ver- uh, their own version of interpreting Islam and political version. Mm-hmm. All that now is going to be manifesting itself in Tunisia because uh, they won the first election, Nahda, that is. They won the first election in 2011. Mm-hmm. They gov- gave up. They learned from the mistakes of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt they gave up government. They remained, in, in, in essence, influence, influential in the parliament. Uh, during the second round of election, they lost, but no, not by much. Uh, they just reversed position between this new party, mm-hmm. and uh, they're still in, in government. Uh, they were happy to just take one post in the, in the current cabinet. Um, and all these, I think, is uh, present, presenting Tunisia uh, as the future if you really want to bring about change that is generally internal and not manipulated by other forces. Mm -hmm. And you can see it in the Tunisia's uh, foreign policy, current policy, whether uh, in relations to the West or in relations to the Middle East Mm -hmm. uh, in general. So if if the way forward, in a way, is to, for an individual nation, to keep outside influences out, and let its own internal process happen. I mean, is, is, that, is, the, is the cow already out of the barn on that one? I'm, there is so much international influence in Syria. In, uh, now we have a situation in Yemen. Libya went the way it did. Um, Tunisia, to me, as an outsider, seems to be a place that had its own sort of special, unique set of circumstances that, that I'm not seeing in other countries in the Middle East. Is that, would that be true or, or not? I mean, was Tunisia... It seems to have come through this in a way that, for many of us, looks pretty promising. Whereas, um, when you look at 
what's happening in many, many other areas, not just because of ISIL and Al-Qaeda, mm. but also just confusion within an international border, within national borders in these uh, locations. Um, what, what do you see for the future? Do you see pockets of hope or places where it looks as though democracy or mm. self, I don't see pockets self. of hope, actually. <laughs> I just see hope. You just see hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, there, so there's, there is no, there is no uh, stepping back. Yeah. I think there is no change. It is slow. Um, but the reason I see hope is when these powerful countries, such mm -hmm. as Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. who are influencing or attempted to influence uh, the path of this uprising uh, in Libya, mm -hmm. uh, in Syria, and now in Yemen, they're not doing that for the sake of the Yemenis, for the Syrians, or for the Libyans. Clearly, they are doing it for their own security. Mm -hmm. And I think that's misreading the, 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 the misdiagnosing the situation. And, um, and it's also a sign of nervousness. Uh, and that's why I see hope. Because if they're nervous, that means for a good reason. Mm -hmm. And they should be nervous. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's going to be a long process. Unfortunately, uh, the injection of this dose of violence in Syria, in uh, Libya, mm -hmm. and now in Yemen, uh, is slowing it down and it's making it a little difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but in the end, uh, this is the time, I think, for... The, uh, the Arab countries, since this is about the uh, Arab Spring, and also for countries around it. Turkey is impacted, clearly. Mm -hmm. Iran is impacted. Mm -hmm. And even countries as far as probably the Far East are impacted. Pakistan is mm -hmm. being uh, drawn into this coalition that is uh, bombing Yemen. Uh, so the Arab Spring is, uh, is, is, more, uh, is beyond just the borders of the Arab country, the 21 and 22 Arab countries. Mm -hmm. It is a wave of change. Um, that would not be stopped. Uh, it need to be refined again to make sure that what it is after is that unifying call, not the ideological, not the religious. Is that that's really the, the what is uh, what will de would de determine if a revolution succeeds or fails mm -hmm. is the unifying call mm -hmm. uh, that would be embraced even by a minority. It doesn't have to be you know that that fallacy that revolutions are done by a majority of people and after that everybody cheers They're like oh mm -hmm. Tunisians did this it never happened that much. all revolutions are done by minorities mm -hmm. the majorities generally are shamed by that um, mm -hmm. when people demand in this case dignity even the elite even those who supported the regimes before they were shamed uh, to take in a, a different position mm -hmm. and that's the test of I think of uh, success is that when the majority are either silent or uh, they're sympathetic, then that will continue. Mm -hmm. I sense that there is a question of dignity for the Saudis. A minority there, whether religious minorities or the poor, mm -hmm. marginalized, the Yemenis, they feel like they're not respected, they're not treated with dignity. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that is powerful enough. That will, all what it needs is about 5-10% of the population to fight for it, and they will get it. Mm -hmm. And that's where my optimism comes from, is because actually of the power of that message. Wow. Well, you can see this is going to be a very interesting week, a, a week's um, um, papers, um, uh, discussions, uh, keynotes. Um, there's an art exhibit at the Museum of Art, uh, at the Old Capitol, um, uh, in the humanities sections, just 
beautiful. And uh, you should see that. There's also um, Middle Eastern music on Friday night, all kinds mm -hmm. of wonderful things that you've put together, Ahmed. And of course, the next two segments of this program will continue to address these questions of um, uh, the Arab Spring in a global context. And I can't thank you enough, uh, Ahmed Sfayaya, for being here with us tonight and for putting the conference together. And um, we look forward me. to the next two segments. You're welcome. Uh, and that's it for this first segment of World Canvas. You can catch all of this programming on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And you can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. Uh, I'm Joan Karen for International Programs. Uh, that's it for this program. Thank you for joining us. Good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of our three-part series on the Arab Spring in a Global Context. This program is the first event of the 2015 Provost Global Forum, which is a multi-day international symposium featuring panel discussions, keynote addresses, and the presentation of papers, as well as numerous art exhibits and musical performances. In this segment, we're going to explore the social and psychological dynamics that were at play as the Arab Spring revolutions took hold and look specifically at the influence of the media, both old and new, on the evolution of the Arab Spring. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you that you're invited to come to these live shows if you're in Iowa City, or you can catch them later on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And you can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. I'd like to introduce our uh, two guests for this segment. Just next to me is Sahar Kamis, Associate Professor of the Department of Communication at the University of Maryland. Dr. Kamis is an expert on Arab and Muslim media and the former head of the Mass, Commun Mass Communication and Information Science Department in Qatar University. Dr. Kamis is a media commentator and analyst, a public speaker, a human rights commissioner in the Human Rights Commission in Montgomery County, Maryland. She's also a radio host who presents a monthly radio show on U.S. Arab Radio, the first Arab-American radio station broadcasting in the United States and Canada. So welcome. Thanks for Thank being Thank you so here. much. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And next to uh, Ms. Kamis is uh, Walid Afifi, professor and chair of the University of Iowa Department of Communication Studies. Dr. Afifi's research program revolves around the experience of uncertainties and their management across a wide range of populations, including Palestinian refugees in Lebanon. Born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon, he was formerly a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of California at Santa Barbara, where he served as chair of the undergraduate program in Middle East Studies and was an affiliate of UCSB's Center for Middle East Studies. He also served as visiting professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the American University of Beirut. Dr. Afifi, a 1990 graduate with his BA from the UI, returned to campus as chair of the Department of Communication Studies in 2013. Pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, so, Sahar, I'd like to just begin with you. I think uh, we're all aware of the explosion of communications tools, the ways we interact with one another now through lots of different media, quite different from 10 years ago, 15 mm -hmm. years ago. And um, the speed with which we can both send things out, receive things, try to process them, sometimes we get in the way of ourselves. Sometimes there's no fact-checking. Sometimes... All kinds of crazy stuff is happening that we may believe, we may try to refute. It's a very different world in terms of 
external communications tools. We were talking a little bit before the program began, and you said, all of that is true, but you know, people still pick up the phone and call each other. They still have conversations on the street corner. How do you see uh, conversation, communication, media as having affected what has happened during this period we're calling the Arab Spring? First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's indeed a pleasure to be here in Iowa for the very first time, my first time here, and to be part of this. Uh, thank you. And uh, to be part of this great uh, conference on the Arab Spring and part of World Canvas as well. Uh, let me start first by talking about the role of social media or new media in general, and then talk about the role in the context of the so-called Arab Spring or Arab Awakening uh, movements or uprisings in particular. I think that the presence of these new tools and means of communication that we call now social media, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, has changed really the kind and pace and form of communication that exists, whether in the political domain or in the social domain. Mm -hmm. The name itself, social media, is interesting because they started first as social media. People would invite you to a party or you know, dating websites and stuff like that. I always tease my students in my Arab media course, and I say, you can use Facebook for things other than dating and partying. <laughs> People use it sometimes to launch revolutions, <laughs> to change regimes in power. <laughs> you know? So think about these you know, so-called quote-unquote social media and how they evolved into some kind of tools for political mobilization and networking and connecting people in very serious manners such as political movements. And let me just pinpoint here the fact that these types of social media cannot really be put just in one parcel. They do have different roles and different functions. For example, Facebook is best for the purpose of networking and the purpose of having people join a certain cause. So for example, the we are all Khalid Saeed Facebook page, which became one of the iconic uh, you know, features or really, uh, you know, parts of the Egyptian revolution that mobilized people. It started on Facebook and started to have hundreds of thousands of followers and people started to post on it and join the page and like the page. So it has this kind of snowballing effect to attract people and galvanize them to kind of really create this kind of catalyst for networking. Mm -hmm. Twitter is best for minute, on, minute by the minute on the ground, uh, you know, organization. Mm -hmm. For example, there is this book which is called Tweets from Tahrir whereby activists on the ground in the heart of Tahrir Square were actually documenting minute by minute what was going on in Tahrir Square. I'm being attacked right now by the police. Send help on the way. I'm being tear gassed. I'm being harassed. Don't go to this street. Go to the other street. So it's a way really to kind of create minute by minute on the ground organization and documentation. YouTube, of course, is best for the purpose of citizen journalism a phenomenon I'm sure we're going to be talking about a lot in the context of this conference and beyond, because it's the process whereby people take charge of documenting what is actually happening and going on in the, on the ground and just sending it immediately, not just to a local audience, but to a local, regional, and also global, international audience. Mm -hmm. If it was not for YouTube, we will have no clue what is happening inside a country like Syria, where foreign journalists and correspondents are barred or really kind of prohibited from entering the country and playing the role as journalists. If it was not for YouTube, we would not be seeing all of these atrocities and horrors going on. Mm -hmm. So citizens with their own digital cameras and cell phones and health, health, handheld devices were able to capture and document these very important moments and send them internationally to an entire audience. And that's the, really the value of YouTube in terms of documentation. Mm -hmm. Blogs, on the other hand, are very good in terms of brainstorming. So if I want to brainstorm with you about, you know, what is the way forward, you know, for the so-called Arab Spring or post-Arab Spring countries or Arab Awakening countries? What are your ideas about reform in a country like Egypt? 
we can start a certain platform on political blogs and it can open a forum or a platform for discussion and for brainstorming and for the exchange of ideas around these issues. So although we put them all in one parcel, mm -hmm. we should also be able to distinguish some of these trends or advantages of these particular types of social media and what role each of them can play best. Going back to your question, however, about you know, this social media and also comparing them to interpersonal communication, I do not see things as you know, a dichotomy, that you know, you're either on social media or you are either conversing or talking with people. Because guess what? Even though social media played a very important and vital role in the context of the so-called Arab uprisings or Arab Spring movements, mm -hmm. we cannot ever deny or uh, you know, ignore the word of mouth and the role of interpersonal face-to-face -face communication. In the Arab world, there are still staggeringly high rates of illiteracy, very high rates of illiteracy. And some people are not literate even in terms of media literacy or knowing how to use social media or knowing how to use the Internet. Mm -hmm. But they are galvanized and they are attracted by their own relatives and peers and friends who are more technologically savvy. Mm -hmm. And they kind of guide them into the process of how to use these media, but they also affect them through word-of-mouth interaction. Mm -hmm. So there is still a very strong oral culture an oral communication and interpersonal communication still plays a very important and undeniable role, especially if you're talking about small towns, rural areas. Mm -hmm. There are whole you know, portions of the population that are not maybe on social media, mm -hmm. not on the Internet, but they are able to be galvanized and networking through you know, organization and communication with their own peers and friends and neighbors. And that's how the word of mouth has an impact and oral communication culture is still very strong. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to put things in perspective. Mm -hmm. We don't want to overestimate or underestimate the role of social media, but we want to see it side by side and in parallel with other forms of communication, including interpersonal communication. Mm -hmm. Well, let's think about traditional media, um, maybe government-controlled um, television news outlets, maybe um, um, newspapers with long-standing in a given country. Um, how did those outlets respond to these early to these Arab awakenings? What what kind of uh, reporting was done? What kind of reflection was given back to the people of what was happening on the streets? Very interesting question, and I have some funny uh, stuff to mention here. <laughs> Egyptians, I'm originally from Egypt, have this great sense of humor that becomes even sharper in the case of disaster or crisis. Yeah. So whenever <laughs> things get very, wor you know, really worse, that's yeah. when our sense of humor shines. <laughs> you know, the things are really bad at this moment. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the heart of, you know, the Egyptian revolution in 2011, right, when people were being, you know, beaten up and tear gassed and, you know, uh, there's really all of this harsh conflicts and everything, you would turn to two different channels, Al Jazeera, and turn to Channel One on Egyptian TV. And it's like you're talking about two completely different worlds, two completely different countries. You go yeah. to Al Jazeera and you see all the conflicts and, you know, the police is here and the army and their tanks and people are being, you know, beaten and tear gassed. And you go to the Channel 1 on Egyptian TV, the national TV, and you see the beautiful Nile. <laughs> <laughs> it looks so beautiful, so romantic. You think that you are in Venice. <laughs> and I'm like, watching both, I'm like, are they both reporting from Cairo? Mm -hmm. Is this the same city? Is this the same place at the same time, the same moment? Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So really, national media or governmental media has been under the governmental fist, the governmental control for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. And that has not changed. 
they have remained very much under the control of the Ministry of Information in many of these countries, mm -hmm. and they dictate to them pretty much what is to be written, what is to be shared, what is to be broadcasted, and what is not to be allowed mm -hmm. from being shown or broadcasted or written. Mm -hmm. So this has, of course, limited their credibility mm -hmm. in the eyes of the Arab publics, because mm -hmm. the, the publics know very well that these are highly controlled type of media that they cannot really trust because they simply reflect the governmental or the official uh, point of view. To give you another example from Egypt also, you know, you can see, for example, things like Al-Ahram newspaper, which is the most important daily national newspaper in Egypt, semi-official newspaper. It has the headlines, you know, that at the beginning that this is just a conspiracy. When people started to go out to Tahrir Square, this is a conspiracy. Uh, you know, these are people against the, 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 wealth, the welfare of the country and so on. Mm -hmm. And the moment uh, Mubarak decides to step down, right, the next day there is a big banner on the front page of Al-Ahram. The Egyptian people did it, right? <laughs> People were able to force the regime mm -hmm. to, to, to move out. People were able to succeed. The will of the people prevailed, and they kicked the old regime out. And I'm like, okay, that is not exactly what you were just saying, you know, mm -hmm. last week mm -hmm. or a few mm -hmm. days ago, right? Mm -hmm. So again, it is these very, uh, you know, sarcastic, bitterly sarcastic examples, in my opinion, mm -hmm. that show you that these are very highly controlled media mm -hmm. that have very limited credibility because of their uh, governmental, uh, uh, you know, agenda. But let me tell you something very important in this context also. The role of citizen journalism has forced some of these, even the highly controlled mm -hmm. forms of national media, to start to address some of the issues that were very sensitive and somehow untouchable before, whether on the political arena or the political front or the social front. In other words, there was a spillover effect yeah. from the realm of citizen journalism into the realm of national media and national communication. They forced you know, the, the national media to talk about things like protesting, writing, uh, violations of human rights, uh, you know, corruption on the governmental level. These were issues that you would, you would not see in national media before. When citizen journalists started to blog and tweet and post and text on these issues, they kind of forced this agenda and had a spillover effect in the political arena, mm -hmm. and these topics started to, uh, you know, to be seen in the national press. The mm -hmm. same thing in the social arena. If you talk about something very sensitive like sexual harassment, mm -hmm. sexual harassment, for example, on the streets of Cairo, which unfortunately is a major um, terrible issue. It's shameful, but it's, it's there. You know, that is something that you would have never seen in the national media had it not been for the role of political bloggers and social bloggers who started to talk about it in their own blogs and on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. And by doing that, they started to force this kind of sensitive topic into the national governmental media. Mm -hmm. So there is some kind of spillover effect from the realm of citizen journalism into the realm of national media. Wow. So interesting. Well, well uh, let's bring you into this, uh, Waleed, if we may. Um, you study something, I think it's such an interesting phrase, the experience of uncertainties mm -hmm. in life. Um, you, you research the psychological and behavioral uh, effects of uncertainty. But you don't know what's going to happen the next day or you feel you have no control over your own life. Please explain it yourself, what this area of research is and how it, how it might help us understand some of the things people um, living in the Middle East in uncertain circumstances are, are dealing with. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's important to recognize too is that... Um, uh, the experience of uh, people in the Arab street is in some ways very different, but in some ways very similar to the experience of citizens all over the world, um, including uh, issues going on right now in the United States, in Baltimore and St. Louis and everyone else. And I, th I think one of the things that we need to importantly consider, and I very much agree with 
what Dr. Soyaya was talking about in terms of dignity. These are issues that people respond to that are dignity-based. I absolutely agree that it was a revolution about dignity. Um, and those, uh, um, I just had a, a conversation in my class today about some of the things going on in Baltimore and the response there. And the, the, the reality is that these are uh, you know, responses that are not single episode. They're decades in the making. Mm -hmm. And they're not uh, single social media-based. They're decades in the making. Um, they're structural. And so I think as we think about and have this conversation, it's important to keep in mind that right now, throughout the world, including certainly in the Arab and uh, the Middle East, there are people whose lives are at risk and who are very much taking that risk to try to shape and change their day-to-day -day realities. And so I think that's something to always keep in mind in a, the comfort of our uh, Iowa City homes. Mm -hmm. um, the uncertainty is, is something that's, that's experienced globally. Uh, in in, in uh, some parts of the world, experience more than others. What I study is uh, senses of uncertainty about your well-being, your safety, your financial security, um, et cetera. So those are pretty large level uncertainties. But we also have day-to-day -day uncertainties about, um, gee, you know, why is my 12-year-old daughter not back yet? I mean, these, you know, why, what is my husband uh, thinking about our relationship right now, or my wife, or my partner? Um, so one of the things that really is remarkable in some communities is that they're not only dealing with these basic day-to-day -day uncertainties that we all experience, uh, some very small, some moderate in size, but they're also dealing with uncertainties about their, their survival. And that's um, you know, how, how we are able to layer and manage those things, how that affects our communication abilities, I think is, is um, central to understanding how people respond. In other words, when we're so uncertain that we really don't know what's coming up next, does that empower us or does that um, you know, stop us from acting in any, in any way at all? And those are questions that, frankly, we don't really have answered. We hear about uncertainty a lot, but there's actually quite a limited amount of uh, systematic research on uncertainty. And so that's one of the things that I'm hoping to try to address a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So was there a need for some kind of cultural or, or social uh, change in the minds of, of people in these particular countries we're talking about right now that have, that have undergone a lot of um, um, public activism and so on? Is there something that's happened, do you think, uh, in terms of the way young people are... are um, perhaps taking the lead here with their parents' permission, perhaps, in, yeah, in the Middle East? Yeah. Um, so one of the things, every, every community, I think, has societal and cultural norms that shape a lot of the behavior that we see in those communities. I think one of the things that really struck me that I haven't seen, I think, sufficient analysis of in, in many circles is that um, you know, for youth to be taking the lead role on, in some of these actions and, and these revolutions um, required an implicit contract that had to get negotiated within families. Mm -hmm. um, these are communities that are, um, have very strong family structures, have very hierarchical family structures. I mean, one of the things that we do is study family communication. And the kind of interaction we see in typical US-based families is not at all with the kind of interaction that we would see in typical Arab families. Mm -hmm. um, there's just uh, approachability and sort of respect that gets communicated in different ways that doesn't allow the kind of communication that occurs in different cultures. That has to be understood as part of any analysis that you do when you're trying to consider how did the youth um, spend days on end uh, revolting in a system where authoritarianism is, uh, is typical, where hierarchical structure is respected, where parents in the end of the day have authority over their kids much more so than in other communities. There had to be an implicit conversation that allowed that to happen. And, uh, and in some ways, irreparably or irrevocably changed, and this goes back again to what Dr. Swayaya was saying, changed the realities on the ground 
for families. And once you understand better how that works, since the family really is the primary structural unit in the Middle East, that we could argue worldwide, but certainly it's the case in the Middle East, um, we can get a better understanding of what we ended up seeing, why the youth are taking the role that they're taking, what permission they did or didn't receive from their, from their parents, who themselves, the parents themselves, were often at very serious risk because uh, communities understood that punishing the parents punished the kids and vice versa. Um, how those all get, got negotiated, I think, is something that we don't understand enough and need to be uh, looked at more carefully. Mm-hmm. I need to comment on something yes. here in line with what Dr. Walid was saying. In the case of women, in particular, in some of the most conservative Arab countries, like Bahrain or Yemen, which have also witnessed their own versions of these uh, you know, uprisings, mm-hmm. uh, women felt like it's a very safe domain for them to be more on social media and online, mm-hmm. sometimes then in the realm of actual on-the-street mm-hmm. activism. Although, of course... You know, these stunned us also with heroic examples of going out in public, demonstrating side by side with men, mm-hmm. not being afraid to do so, you know, just facing bullets, facing arrests, you know, everything, uh, social stigma and everything. Mm-hmm. But some of the women I interviewed as well felt like this would be something that their families would find more acceptable yeah. for them, that they can be online, sometimes using pseudonyms, sometimes mm-hmm. being with an anonymous identity or fake names, which mm-hmm. they had mixed feelings mm-hmm. about because they were like, if I want to be out there, I want to be interviewed by CNN at some point about my activism. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's what one activist in Libya actually told me. I was like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> Why not? And she was like, but if I'm always using a pseudonym, they would never know who I am. Yeah. But my family would feel it's much safer for me to do yeah. that yeah. rather than use my real name mm-hmm. or go out in the street and actually face bullets mm-hmm. or face the risk, mm-hmm. of be- risk of being you know, harassed or arrested. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, yes, the family approval was something that was important. And mm-hmm. sometimes they went against the family, even their own immediate nuclear family, and c- kind of resisted even the parental yeah. authority or the family authority and took very high risks, whether online or offline, on the ground. Mm. And I think that speaks also to this idea of risk. They're not only risking um, their well-being for government action, they're risking their relational well-being uh, mm-hmm. connected to family. And again, in a community where family is... Is, uh, and the family name mm-hmm. is central. Mm-hmm. So for people to take on those risks, both familial, relational, and security, mm-hmm. I think really speaks to the sense of uh, at what point do you get where you have um, uh, such a response to the need for dignity and you've lost your fear. And I think that's a critical component, again, that Shreya said about losing fear. Fear holds us back um, in most situations from acting in ways that we, where we worry about well-being. Once that fear goes away, once there's a sense that I have nothing to lose, my dignity is lost, my family's dignity is lost, that is incredibly powerful. And one of the things that we don't speak enough of, I think, in this conversation is the Palestinian experience. Mm-hmm. Certainly communities that have uh, revolted against um, you know, a lack of dignity for a very long time um, and that in many cases have lost that fear. Um, and so that's really what it takes for someone to take that, those steps of trying to free themselves of the structures in which they find themselves. Mm-hmm. You've what? recently done some research with uh, Palestinians living in Lebanon. Yeah, so we did yeah. some work in refugee camps, yeah. and again on issues of uncertainty and how, how actually mothers can um, help manage their uh, uh, kids' well-being and hopelessness. And one of the things actually that we found remarkable is that the level of hopelessness among uh, Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, which frankly, I mean, given that they have very little options outside of the camps mm-hmm. and their situation is very dire, um, that um, their levels, the adolescence levels of hopelessness was three times less than using the same measure of adolescent levels of hopelessness in inner city Alabama. Now, 
you know, what does that say? I mean, I think, it, mm. I, don't, I don't know, I'm not sure what it says, except, and I think there's a really interesting analysis about why. One possibility is, of course, inner city youth in Alabama may, have, may see possibilities for reaching things that they continue to fail, and the Palestinian refugees that we surveyed recognize that that is not an option and come to recognize mm-hmm. what, their, what their options are. But another option that uh, I think merits some attention is the role of religiosity, the role mm-hmm. of family, and the role of, of a sort of community in giving them a sense of hope in cases that are, that are difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. This is, this is so, so, so interesting. And I, one question I have regarding the, you, you said that we probably, although it's gone on for many, many decades now, this Palestinian refugee crisis situation has um, gone on for such a very long time. And for many of us, I think, in the West, we looked at the Israel-Palestine situation as the one sort of confounding thing that may never get fixed or whatever. Now that so much has happened in Syria, Iraq, uh, what's going on now in um, Yemen and all of these areas, it seems to me that um, international press has sort of moved away from the Palestinian issue for a little while. What I'm wondering is whether in the hearts and minds of so many of the um, people in the, the Middle East who are now going through all of these uh, expressions of revolution on their own, how much is the Palestinian issue uh, integral to the way these, these people may be feeling? It's a fine question. Um, the Palestinians have been hoping for Arab governmental interference for a very long yeah. time. Yeah. And I think that hope is, uh, has, has faded a long time ago. But the Arab um, street, I think, is a very different uh, reality. Um, I can't, I'm not an expert in that, so I can't speak. But I can certainly, um, from personal experience, speak that the Arab street is, is a quite different experience in the Arab government uh, vis-a-vis their response to Palestinians. But I think in the end, people are responding to their own lot in life. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, that's the situation that makes us act or not act. We may have a lot of compassion for another community. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I have a lot of compassion for. I could speak to a lot of communities. That's not what makes me risk family, relationship, mm-hmm. life uh, to act. So in the end, I think it really is local, even though there are global mm-hmm. affinities. Uh, in the end, it's a local that really makes people act. I did have one question for Dr. Khamis about this idea of social media and its impact, because the benefits of, of social media also turn to a, a record of what we've done. That's a permanent record, essentially, quasi at least, could be permanent, and that governments have access to. So in fact, I mean, I'm a, I try to act on Facebook. I try to put, post some things on Facebook. When I go back to Lebanon, I have friends and family that says, Walid, you know, they're going to pull up your Facebook. They're going to see exactly where you could be in serious trouble. And I don't consider myself at all activist. I just post a few things here and there. So I don't know if there's much reflection on the true... Um, you know, activists and how that, you know, the negative side of that in Absolutely. some ways, or the risks. Yeah. I mean, thank you for asking this yeah. question. It's a very important one because there are indeed now what we call cyber wars. Mm-hmm. And these cyber wars are real. And just like the activists and protesters are sharpening their own, you know, uh, media savviness, if you will, mm-hmm. becoming more technologically and media savvy, so are the regimes in power. Mm-hmm. The regimes <laughs> right. in power are also building their own learning curve. Mm-hmm. So in 2010, before it all started, Many of these regimes were clueless. Mm-hmm. They did not have a clue what's going to happen. In 2011, the Egyptian government was taken by surprise. The Tunisian government was taken by surprise. They did not know what to do. They panicked. They, you know, they pulled down the kill switch. They right. just turned off the internet for a whole week. You know, and it really backfired because people started to go out in the streets, even in larger numbers, and to look for their own you know, friends and their own, peer, their own peers in the streets. And they started to find alternative ways to address public opinion, like speak to tweet service, whereby you can just call a number and feed your message to Twitter verbally, mm-hmm. and then the message will appear 
on Twitter even without any internet connection. So the governments did not really know how to respond effectively to many of these you know, high-rising stars, if you will, in the world of online activism. Mm -hmm. Look at the case of Syria. The Syrian regime was looking and watching what mm -hmm. is happening in Tunisia, what is happening in Egypt, and they were learning from it. So they started to be much more savvy. They started to develop their own you know, Syrian electronic army, right? which Bashar Assad was praising as like, right, it's yeah, doing yeah. a great work. <laughs> what it was doing is hacking these activists' websites, trying to hack the activists' websites to sabotage their efforts, to track their IP addresses. In some cases, people will face very serious consequences. Their accounts will be shut down. They may be even physically threatened or arrested you know, or beaten to death. In the case of Libya, there was this the famous case of an activist who was literally on his computer sending opposing messages to Qaddafi when some of Qaddafi's men stormed in his apartment right. and they killed him on the spot. And his wife came online and she said, you know, I'm telling the whole world this just happened now. It's a terrible incident, but my husband has been, you know, killed. Mm -hmm. And it was all online. Mm -hmm. So these are very, very serious cyber wars mm -hmm. between the activists and the protesters on one hand mm -hmm. and between the regimes in power. Mm -hmm. And each one is trying to race and to, you know, build their own websites and Facebook pages you know, SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, when it was in power during the transitional period in Egypt, they had their own websites. Ikhwan Web, the Muslim Brotherhood, had their own website. So every party and group on the political spectrum now is trying to sharpen their own, you know, online and technological tools mm -hmm. and to enter this kind of technological race and be part of this quote-unquote cyber wars. But let me tell you also that there are some serious, serious threats now in a country like Egypt, for example, where I have some of my own friends changing their own names online. So right. I get this message from someone yeah. saying, I miss you. Haven't seen you for such a long time. I'm like, who is this person? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean yeah. you miss me? I don't even know who you are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then I discovered that this person has actually changed their name yeah, using a pseudonym because mm -hmm. they're afraid of being, you know, traced or afraid of being, you know, mm -hmm. hacked or, you know, being arrested. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. very, very serious. Yeah. So people are now hiding sometimes their activism and their online activity mm -hmm. for fear of retaliation and for fear of being traced and being attacked or hacked or even arrested yeah. by the regimes in power. It's very serious. Mm. Wow, well, you can see that this is going to be a very, very interesting week of discussions about uh, the Arab Spring and where we are now, five years into this, this period. Um, I want to say very big thank you to Dr. Kamis and thank to you. Dr. Afifi. Thank you so much for being with thank us you. today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, and uh, please stay with us for this third segment in our program this afternoon. Uh, it's going to be equally interesting. We're going to try to think about the global impact of, uh, of um, the Arab Spring with uh, two exceptional guests. So uh, you're listening to World Canvas, and you can find this program on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Program's website, which is international.com. Uiowa.edu, and to check out Film Scene, you can go to icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City, and we're happy to have you join us for part three of this series on the Arab Spring in a Global Context. In this final segment, we'll be trying to understand where we are now, five years after the start of what we're calling the Arab Spring. What's the impact in the region and in the West, and what does it mean for the future of U.S. foreign policy? 
Before we start, I want to invite you to join us for these live programs if you can, or catch them later on UITV, YouTube, or iTunes. Information about upcoming shows, as well as links to archived programs, can be found at international.uiowa.edu. And you can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. A reminder that this program is part of the Provost Global Forum for 2015, a series of events happening all week long here in Iowa City, and they're all open to the public, so we hope you can join uh, Join us for many of these events. You can find a full schedule at international.uiowa.edu. Our very special guests for this segment are Juan Cole and uh, Shibli Telhami. Uh, Mr. Cole is just next to me here. He's the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. For three and a half decades, he's sought to put the relationship of the West and the Muslim world in historical context. His most recent book is The New Arabs, How the Millennial Generation is Changing the Middle East. He also authored Engaging the Muslim World, Napoleon's Egypt, Invading the Middle East, and many other books. Dr. Cole has written widely about upheavals in the Arab world since 2011. He's written about Sunni extremist groups and about Shiite politics. He's a well-known commentator on Middle Eastern issues and has a regular column at Truth Dig. Uh, Dr. Cole commands Arabic, Persian, and Urdu and reads Turkish. And it's a great pleasure to have you here this afternoon, Dr. Cole. Dr. Shibli Talhami uh, is at the far end of our panel here. He is the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Talhami has served as an advisor to the U.S. Mission to the U.N., an advisor to former Congressman Lee Hamilton, and senior advisor to the U.S. Special Envoy George Mitchell. His best-selling book, The Stakes, America and the Middle East, was selected by Foreign Affairs as one of the top five books on the Middle East in 2003. In addition, his most recent book, The World Through Arab Eyes, Arab Public Opinion and the Reshaping of the Middle East, was published in 2013. Dr. Telhami was selected by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, along with the New York Times, as one of the great immigrants for 2013. Dr. Telhami is also a recipient of the University of Maryland's Honors College 2014 Outstanding Faculty Award. A pleasure to have you here Thank this you. afternoon. Um, so, um, you've heard the first two segments of this program. Lots of discussion going on this weekend every day on what's happening in the Middle East and, and um, in the last five years or so. I'll turn to you first, uh, Juan, and ask you, how could we begin to assess the global impact of these last five years of what's been called the Arab Spring or the Dignity Revolution? Well, I'm very interested in uh, the young people who made these revolutions and came out in the streets uh, deployed new kinds of politics. Uh, for instance, this idea of just setting up tents and staying in the downtown area of a major city near to the presidential palace, near to the centers of power, which is a kind of threat. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a kind of blackmail on the elite. Nothing's going to get done. We're not going home mm -hmm. until things change. In fact, towards the end, because in Egypt in 2011, this thing lasted for several weeks, mm -hmm. the, young people were holding up signs, Mubarak, leave, I need a shower. <laughs> they were camped out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, these techniques have been uh, taken up all over the world uh, and in, in, in places and in ways that I think we don't always attend to in the United States. Mm -hmm. But uh, for instance, in Chile, there's been a big student movement uh, demanding free education, mm -hmm. uh, which is now something that President Obama has started to talk mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. uh, in this country. Uh, 
but pushing back against uh, marketizing mm -hmm. education, student debt, and so forth. Mm -hmm. and, and there have been huge demonstrations mm -hmm. in Chile. And they have explicitly uh, instanced having seen the Tahrir uh, Square demonstrations in Egypt as an inspiration to them. Or in Brazil, young people have protested over transportation costs uh, and have challenged the government on important infrastructural questions. Mm -hmm. And again, for them, you know, if you can't get to your work, if it's too expensive, and so this is a matter of dignity. Yeah. Uh, in Spain, also, there has been a whole movement called the Indignados, uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the indignant ones. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, they went to Egypt and consulted with the young people to get ideas how to challenge their government, mm -hmm. again, over issues in the cost of education and uh, uh, employment and, and so forth. Uh, and in Turkey, uh, we saw uh, with the Gezi Park uh, demonstrations, and that was a demonstration that the government was going to take away public space, parks and recreational areas that mm -hmm. young people use, mm -hmm. and, and turn it into a mall. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was a, a protest against too much, you know, consumer culture mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. uh, and so forth. And this became, an, uh, in Turkey, a nationwide movement a couple years ago. Again, very clearly influenced by what the Arab youth had accomplished mm -hmm. and the techniques that they deployed and so forth. Mm -hmm. So this thing has gone all over the world. And of course, we have to mention uh, um, Occupy Wall Street in this yeah. country, mm -hmm. uh, which also uh, some of the people who initially began it and called for a demonstration on September 17th uh, talked about what they had seen of the Arab youth's mm -hmm. activities. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Tilhami, let me ask you the same question. How, how do we begin to, to look at this whole complex of events and, and um, draw some major um, assessments from it? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting oh, me. You're and welcome. I'm happy to be uh, in Iowa when the weather is beautiful and yes. uh, around the corner all the presidential candidates have camped out. So <laughs> uh, happy to be here. Um, you know, I, I, I think, first of all, we really need to differentiate. When we look at the Middle East now, and we're seeing all these upheavals, uh, you know, almost in every corner, um, we sort of link it all up to the Arab uprisings. And frankly, that's a mistake. We need to start by differentiating that which is linked to the Arab uprisings and that which is not. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, when you ask Americans today, what is the biggest threat facing the United States in the Middle East today? Uh, they don't tell you it's Libya. They don't tell you it's Yemen. They don't tell you even it's Iran. They say it's ISIS. They say it's the Islamic State. Well, the Islamic State, whether it's true that it's number one threat or not objective, let's know the story, but the perception. The Islamic State, in my own mind, is far more a product of the 2003 Iraq War than it is a product of the Arab uprisings. And so a lot of the upheavals that we're seeing, or a lot of the trouble that we're seeing, uh, particularly linked to the rise of ISIS itself in Iraq and Syria, is more linked to this war that has been devastating and had disastrous consequences uh, over, over the decade, uh, certainly with added fuel coming from the Arab uprising. So we need to, first of all, keep conceptual separation. Not everything that is happening is linked to the Arab uprisings. Uh, second, if you look at how the international community, both at the level of publics and at the level of governments, viewed the Arab uprisings, you have to say there has been an evolving trend. It's not identical. Uh, I mean, let's start with uh, the assumption that was here 
in America. Uh, you know, historically, American foreign policy has preferred what was called stability in the region. We, we're sort of more operating on a realist paradigm. And then when Bush start, you know, started the 2003 war, linked it up to this idea of um, democracy, and then there was this whole new idea that maybe instability is a good thing. And, well, it, it's when, when, when the uprising started, and they started peacefully, uh, ben Ali in Tunisia was overthrown very quickly. Mubarak, no one thought that could happen. He even didn't think so. He said, I'm not like Ben Ali. He was overthrown very quickly. And then it started up in Libya and elsewhere. And you can see even the immediate change of policy by the international community. You, saw, you started seeing it in day one from France. France initially took a position in favor of Ben Ali, the foreign minister of France, actually well, you know, spoke on behalf of Ben Ali, so much so that when he was overthrown, she was removed from office by the president, and the president overcompensating by jumping on the bandwagon of uh, the, the Arab revolutions to the point of becoming the biggest advocate of intervention in Libya to overthrow Gaddafi. So, and you can see even with President Obama. I mean, President Obama is, if you can argue when he came to office, uh, he was much more of a realist about foreign policy. I would even argue that his kind of, um, if, if you had a model for effective administration, it was Bush Sr. And if you had a model for a team, it was a team like the one led by Brent Scowcroft of, of the Bush White House. So he comes in less enamored by the rhetoric of the Bush administration and more going to fix relations with the Muslim world, pull out of Iraq, but still make deal with regimes. He gave his big speech to the Arab world standing next to President Mubarak. He went on his face trip to talk to the king of Saudi Arabia. But when it looked like there was a wave of unstoppable wave of, of uh, uh, public power, people power, mostly peaceful, not ideological, successful, no one wanted to be on the wrong side of history. And uh, everybody jumped on that bandwagon, uh, and I think rightly so. I think rightly so, because I think no one should be on the, on the wrong side, even if it didn't have much of a chance in some places. But nonetheless, we see a reversal now, because I think even President Obama says that his, the intervention in Libya may have been one of his mistakes. Um, you can see that... Um, uh, the events that happen in, in Egypt and certainly what's happening in Syria and what's happening in Yemen uh, has, I think, uh, uh, had a lot of countries, uh, a lot of people uh, revert to, in a way, the old habits, which is uh, let's find, uh, you know, stable leaders and support them. Yeah, we don't like it. Let's hold our noses and still do it anyway because that's in our interest. So we're back anyway. Uh, we, we still have hope. But we, we're back in that, in that same mode. Interestingly, that even is true with public opinion. Because I have been polling on this here in the American uh, arena, American public opinion, on how they saw the Arab uprising. So right after you know, Mubarak was overthrown, we asked, um, you know, is this, how do you see the Arab uprising? Are they more about Islamic groups trying to take power? Are they more about... Uh, 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 people who want freedom and democracy like you, and it was more the latter than the former. So we had more people say it's about f 
democracy and freedom. In fact, fascinating, uh, when you ask them about their views of Arabs broadly, um, Americans suddenly had a positive view of Arabs. And of Egyptians, had, at, right after Mubarak, with over 70% of Americans had a positive view of Egyptians. So it was, they saw this public empowerment. People were not chanting uh, slogans, death to America. They, were, they said, we want freedom, we want dignity, we want... And so they were embraced. And when you ask people, do you want... Do you want the United States to support democracy even if it leads to the election of governments that are not pro-American? A majority of Americans said yes. Yeah. People were inspired by it. It has reversed mm -hmm. in the past couple of years, in part because of the rise initially of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, the anarchy that has resulted. And I think the public, too, is back on the side of caution and stability instead of being inspired and jumping on the bandwagon. Mm -hmm. I would say uh, that has been kind of the trend globally, not just here. Mm -hmm. Do you see it the same way, Juan? Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm looking at it at a different level. Mm -hmm. The level of geopolitics, great powers always like the status quo. Very inconvenient for a great power for things to change. They have made deals, they have clients, you know, the President of the United States for nearly 30 years could call up Hosni Mubarak and say, Hosni, we need you to do something about the Suez Canal. We need you to do this, that, or the other thing. He would say, yes, sir. Mm -hmm. So when he's gone and you have to deal with a succession of various actors and their elections, and we don't know who's going to be in Parliament, that's not nearly as convenient for a great power. So I really wouldn't put too much emphasis on what Washington wants. Mm -hmm. You know, Washington would always like things to stay uh, uh, as they are. What, what really strikes me is that these young people, and most of this upheaval has been, uh, has been provoked by people in their 20s. Mm -hmm. They weren't even, you know, alive when Hosni Mubarak came to power, a lot of them. Uh, and uh, so they are putting down a marker on social change. Now, Americans tend to look at this as a, uh, an issue of transition from dictatorship to democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of the great American narrative, uh, along with you know, Horatio Alger and mm -hmm. picking yourself up by your bootstraps and getting, getting to be wealthy after you had been poor. Uh, so how, how great it would be if the Arabs could do both, you know, move mm -hmm. to democracy and pick themselves up and so forth. But, but, but for the young people on the streets, the young people who made these revolutions and who continue to be active, this is about something else. It's about, as Professor Sawaya said, about dignity. Uh, it, it is about social justice. It's about the compact between the government and the people. And one of the things that they were most upset about, which you know, it, it wasn't an issue that, that I think the American public really understood, was that these Republican, with a small r, they were, they were not monarchies, they were republics. These Republican governments were being ruled by presidents for life who were becoming kings. Mm -hmm. And they were going to pass these governments over to their sons. Saif Gaddafi was going to get Libya, and uh, uh, Gamal Mubarak was going to get Egypt, and uh, what's going on in Yemen is still a little bit about whether Ali Abdullah Saleh's son is going to get Yemen. Uh, and so forth. And, and they were going to be inherited like so many sticks of furniture. 
And that was one of the major reasons that they mobilized. They said, no, we're not going to be inherited. These are republics. We are citizens. Uh, and, and so there was a, a movement uh, in Egypt about Gamal Mubarak. Uh, you know, they said that um, when he, he, he was kind of a playboy. He got married late. And when he finally got married, he kind of married a woman who was very fashionable. Her name was Khadiga, or is Khadiga. And uh, so uh, there was a whole campaign of these young people in Egypt that they wrote the Ministry of Interior. They said, we want to have uh, parties to celebrate Gamal getting married. Uh, and the, the theme of the party would be Khadiga, yes, Egypt, no. Uh. <laughs> you, can, you can have Khadiga, you can't have Egypt. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and so... So, you know, again, this was about a compact that the Republican regimes had made with people, that republics mm -hmm. are about, to some extent, popular sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And that was what was being denied. Mm -hmm. And I just want to point out that, that you know, uh, there's a, revolutions are, are full of turmoil. And we forget now, in the United States and the 13 colonies, a third of the population was chased out of here. Mm -hmm. they, they're now Canadians. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it wasn't Pleasant, you know, lots of horrible things happened. And the same in the French Revolution in the 1790s. We all know about the terror mm -hmm. and the peasant revolts. And I mean, really, 100,000 people probably died and all that. So uh, Americans, I think, don't have a strong sense sometimes of the details of history. So when you announce you're going to have a revolution, this is not nice. You know, this is not necessarily going to go smoothly. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a, a lot of turmoil and, and, and so forth. But the question is, what are people fighting for? And I, even in Egypt, where you've had a reassertion of the military, uh, without any doubt, uh, the Egyptian constitution now says that there's term limits on the president. And I personally don't think that that can easily be overcome. And I was in Egypt last year this time. The labor unions were all striking. Even the postal workers, and in Egypt still, you know, a lot of business gets done by the post office, so that's terrible for the economy. The post workers or postal workers are striking. And in the old days, under Mubarak, the, these uh, ninja-looking police would come in, and they would make the workers work. They would, they would bring them to the factory and point guns at them and say, work, no strikes. But in this case, a year ago, the government said, well, what, why are you unhappy? What are you striking about? What could we do for you? Because mm -hmm. they needed them mm -hmm. at that point. The government is not nearly as strong mm -hmm. now as it used to be. So when people say that you know, we're right back to where we were, that's not entirely true. I don't want to deny that there's been a retrenchment of authoritarianism, but we're not right back to where we were. And people also know now how to mobilize. They haven't forgotten. And maybe they're tired. There's been a lot of change. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of the changes were unwelcome. A lot of Egyptians were not happy about the Muslim Brotherhood year mm -hmm. uh, in Egypt. Uh, and, of course, in some countries, like Libya, there's, there's substantial social turmoil and faction fighting. But, um, but I think that these young people are riding a tiger, and they have these insistences on a, on, a, on, on a set of new social compacts, which haven't gone away. Mm -hmm. This thing is not over with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I certainly agree that uh, uh, this thing is not over with and we're not back to authoritarianism the old way. I agree with that. I think what's important, though, is to trust, try to tease out. So what did the Arab uprisings introduce? What is this public empowerment? And how does it interact with other sources of power? And, and that way you can get a little bit handle on how things are working out. Um, 
my own view, uh, I think it, you know, the, the plight for dignity is not new. Arabs have always wanted dignity. It's important for them. Uh, there was not even anything particularly surprising about the Arab economies in 2010, 2011 that you say they haven't experienced in the past 20 years. Uh, so I think that, uh, and, w- and we were never surprised, we as political scientists or historians or students of the Middle East, always knew that there was a huge gap between publics and governments. We knew governments were not popular. We knew that uh, if, if, if publics had a, 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 a choice, they would revolt. I had been doing uh, uh, public opinion polls in the Arab world for 10 years before. Every year I'd say the gap is widening between people and government. So our puzzle as, as you know, specialists wasn't really sort of about... Uh, uh, you know, the gap, it was more about why don't these people revolt? And we had an answer for that. And the answer was, you know, it's not enough to have a lot of angry people to revolt uh, because they need to mobilize in large numbers in an effective way to make a difference. And for that, you need either political parties or social organizations, charismatic leadership to be able to mobilize the public. And governments, of course, understood that. They chopped head. They, they made sure that no one emerged that can organize and they were comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So when the Arab uprising started, the surprise was they happened initially without the need for major political organization or charismatic leadership. And so the principal element has been essentially the information revolution. And I think that information revolution does add an element that's with us to stay. It's an empowerment of the public in the Arab world, particularly the young people, on a scale we had never witnessed before. Mm-hmm. And that is a dynamic that is a long-term dynamic. It's not something that can be put backward because that's only expanding. Uh, that information revolution means that no government can have monopoly on information. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means that you have the kind of organization that uh, our two experts before spoke about where people could mobilize on large numbers when they need to. Uh, and so for that reason, I, I often compare it actually uh, in, a, in a very different way, but compare it nonetheless with the Industrial Revolution in the West, where you had a new dynamic uh, brought about by the industry that empowered individuals through earning wages, that challenged existing political orders and, and, and social institutions. The information revolution is not doing it in the same way, but it's doing it nonetheless. So in that sense, we have a dynamic element. That dynamic element is no one, no, no dictator can put it away anymore. Mm-hmm. They have to deal with it. But, but here's the thing. Okay, so it's wrong to think all people want the same thing. And so the fact that you have a pub, an empowered public, it's not just public against governments. It's publics against publics. Mm-hmm. And so that's the problem. The, more, the, the less central authority you have, by, by, by virtue of empowering publics, you have... Weakened central authority by default, you know, even on the on the, on the in the best circumstance, mm-hmm. um, and you're going to have empowered publics. You're going to have, you know, the the ultra religious and the ultra liberal empowered. You're going to have the Sunni and you're going to have the Shia and you're going to have the Arab and you're going to have the Kurd. Uh, you're going to have the rich and you're going to have the poor and you're going to have everyone who wants anything empowered. That is not necessarily something that is stabilizing or something that brings people all together necessarily against a single central authority where you see it's people versus government. Take Syria. Syria was for sure in part public against government. You had a, you know, an authoritarian ruler being challenged by a public uprising, and that's why a lot of people were inspired. 
But it's far more complicated than that. We see you end up having not only um, you know, people fearing each other. When the Muslim Brotherhood takes control, secular start being worried. Shias start being worried. Christians start being worried. Druze start being worried. And rulers, not only rulers can use them, but as central authority weakens, you have a lot of international players who have a stake who come in. So in Syria, you have the Iranians, and you have the Saudis, and you have Hezbollah, and you have the United States, and you have Russia. And so just to mention a few, that, that, that doesn't you know, uh, go through it. So, so it's very complicated, uh, to put it mildly. So the fact that you have it doesn't, you know, the, let's take Egypt. So you don't need sectarianism to have divide. Look at, look at I mean, Sunni, Egypt is overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim. They're 10% Christians. But it's overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim. So the, the fight is between Sunnis. It's not a fight between, you know, it's not a sectarian yeah. fight. Yeah. Uh, and it's about power. And it's about the nature of Egypt. And the fact that you have the public now as a new element that everybody has to take account of doesn't mean that the old sources of power go away. So mm-hmm. the militaries that happen to be, and by the way, in every country where you had an Arab uprising, you can't understand either the beginning of it, the middle of it, the outcome of it, and the consequence of it without understanding the role of the military, mm-hmm. every single one of them, because frankly, the two relatively successful in the early days cases, Tunisia and Egypt, it was a decision by the military to sacrifice the presidents to preserve themselves. Mm-hmm. So, so those are not going to go away. They're only going to f- try to figure out how to deal with this empowerment. So that's why I'm saying, yes, it's a new dynamic, but it's not necessarily a predictable dynamic. In the short term, it's not necessarily even a happy one. Mm-hmm. In the last couple of minutes, one, um, imagine you're being asked by President Obama, Obama to give him some advice on what should I be doing now in, in the Middle East? What should the U.S. be doing? In two minutes or less, please tell us what we should be doing next. My main advice to President Obama is to get a policy. Because as far as I can tell, he's all over the place. First, Hosni Mubarak, we're sure it's a stable regime. God forbid he's not a dictator. Now he has to go. Then we're all for, you know, elected government of Mohammed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood. And we tell the generals, don't overthrow them and so forth. Then they overthrow them. We said, well, we're going to cut off your aid. Then after a while, we said, well, we decided not to cut off your aid. Mm-hmm. What is that? Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when I used to go to Egypt after the revolution. People were happy to see me because Obama encouraged Mubarak to step down. They said the Americans promote democracy. Now I go, everybody hates me. The Muslim Muslim Brotherhood thinks that I overthrew their president, and and then the the, the people who support the military think that I was supporting the Muslim Brotherhood. And you have people coming on TV saying that an American plot to install fundamentalism in Egypt and then also partition the country has been foiled by the Egyptian military. And I think, well, what were we going to partition it into? The upper and lower kingdom. I I mean, just crazy things are being said. But it it results from, in my view, the American government just being inconsistent and being all over the place. And I understand it's a difficult Mm -hmm. tiger to ride. But but then in in Libya, 
First, uh, first he didn't want anything to do with it, Obama, mm -hmm. and then uh, he called it a turd sandwich, very unwelcome mm -hmm. uh, to get involved in Libya after he'd gotten out of Iraq. Mm -hmm. And then Hillary Clinton and Samantha Powers and, and, and Susan Rice convinced him he had to go in and save people from being massacred, which they would have been. And then, but after, after he bombed Libya and, and helped the rebels come to power, then did we, did we form an army? Don't you, don't you think they might need one? If you overthrow their government, don't you owe them that? We just walked away. And then after that Benghazi incident occurred, the, the horrible thing where the U.S. ambassador was killed, uh, and, and then the, the, the Congress was very irresponsible too, so they decided to stick it to Obama by having, I don't know, 3,000 hearings about Benghazi, and mm -hmm. I think they're still going on. And, and what, what, what that made, what did was to make the State Department nervous about being involved in these countries, so the, the staff at the embassy in Tunisia came to me when I was in the country one time and said, please, you know, blog about this. Tell the American people we're down to a skeleton crew and they took out the dependents from Tunisia. There's nothing going on in Tunisia uh, and, and we can't do our jobs. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the, the U.S. ambassador to, to Libya for some time now has been based in Malta and so forth. So I, I perceive Obama to be all over the place, uh, intervening here, not intervening there, walking away from things, changing. I don't see a policy here. Mm -hmm. I think he would like really just to forget the whole region and go off and do trade deals with the Philippines and South Korea. And you know he's from Hawaii, so it's the Pacific that attracts him. So I would say get a policy. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little kinder to, uh, to the administration. <laughs> um, and not because I agree with everything. I've actually been critical, and I've written critically about uh, many of the things that they're doing. But here's why I'm, I'm a little kinder. Um, I don't think uh, we're in a position to do much in the Middle East. Um, uh, I, I think these events are not about America, uh, and they're not going to be... Uh, they cannot be addressed by an American, major American role. And I think the president, I think to give him credit, he understood that in the first place, this is not about the U.S., don't make them about the U.S. And secondarily, uh, a, the more active American intervention is likely to make things worse, not better. And third, that no matter what you do, you're going to be blamed because America has a legacy. And that legacy is linked to decades of behavior not what it's doing now, what it did yesterday, or what it's going to do tomorrow. It has to do with mistrust in the region, uh, linked to a number of issues, but certainly in the past two decades, mostly to Israel, Palestine, and Iraq, things that are very difficult to alter in people's perception. Uh, and for that reason, you know, even if we were to intervene for genuinely humanitarian reasons in a place like Syria when the, over the chemical weapons issue, uh, and I think the next morning, the very same people who are urging the U.S. to intervene would say, we're doing it for imperialist reasons. Mm -hmm. So I think the less we do, the better. This has been the president's policy. He wants to engage. He doesn't want to get dragged to another war. He wanted to get out of a disastrous Iraq war. Uh, he sees a deal with Iran as something that would, could also prevent additional involvement for the U.S. And everything else becomes a corollary where you have to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that because you have too many interests you cannot avoid dealing with. You can't have necessarily a consistent policy over them. Whether you like the Egyptian military, they are in power. 
they are addressing issues that you worry about, including militant Islamist groups. There is an issue about the maintaining the relationship between Egypt and Israel. And, uh, and so he is, in some ways, if this were his top priority issue, he may have dealt with it in a different way. But since it's not his top priority issue, he's going to have to do the minimum to just keep it in line so it doesn't disrupt his other priorities. So I think they, they see their priority at number one right now as a deal with Iran, and I think that's a legitimate priority for the president at this time. Uh, and they see the second priority as uh, addressing the ISIS uh, threat because it has consequences for both Syria and Iraq. Uh, and maybe down the road, if he has still any bad w- bandwidth, uh, he may want to uh, take one more try on the Israel-Palestine question. So I think everything else becomes secondary. And so I'm not surprised that a superpowers policy becomes somewhat inconsistent. Uh, and these are, of course, uh, uh, times when none of us can predict the outcome. Uh, talking about uncertainty, as Walid was uh, talking earlier in a different segment, um, I would never be in a position to predict what's going to happen in Syria tomorrow or what's going to happen uh, even in Egypt in five years from now or what's going to happen in Libya in two years from now. There are too many moving parts. I could tell you about it, if-then kind of analysis. But I would not, uh, and if you can't do that, um, to bet on certain outcomes in policy would be a mistake. And, and so for that reason, I'm a little kinder to the president. <laughs> could, could I just clarify? I, I, I'm not in favor of interventions. I just, okay. I'm, I'm more impatient with inconsistency. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, Juan Cole and Shibli Chalhami, real pleasure to have you both here. And I know you'll both be speaking later during the uh, symposium on the Arab uh, Spring in a global context. Really interesting week ahead of us all here, and I hope you can take advantage of many of these events. Uh, so once again, Shibli Chalhami and Juan Cole have been with us in this segment. This is World Canvas. If you'd like to watch any of these programs, they'll be posted on um, UITV, on YouTube. You can hear them also through the International Programs website, and we have a podcast on iTunes, so lots of places where you can hear this conversation all over again. We hope you will uh, join us for the next World Canvas, which is next week, in fact, next Tuesday here in this room, and uh, the topic is um, film and its ability to sort of enchant our imaginations and lead us into deeply personal um, adventures in unknown parts of the world, and that's next week. We hope you can join us. We'll have some students who've been in very interesting study abroad experiences, and also we'll talk to some of the organizers here at Film Scene about what they believe is important about international film. So join us for that if you can. Thank you for being with us, and good night.